A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard to beat. Where are you coming from in this one? Your 100% essential download. Jim White and Simon Jordan. You let this get out of control. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken. I'm Sam Matterface, and today, myself, Simon Jordan and Martin Keown began by dissecting Gareth Southgate's latest England squad. Can Marcus Rashford count himself lucky to be included? Southgate's counterpart for next Friday, Graham Arnold, joined the show. Does he believe the Socceroos can topple England? Plus, the standout Premier League fixture this weekend sees Arsenal take on Manchester City. Can Arteta get one over on his mentor, Pep Guardiola? This is Outspoken with White and Jordan. Let's hear from Gareth Southgate. He's announced his England squad for the upcoming international break. And this is why he picked Ollie Watkins. Ollie has, uh, has started the season well. He's, he's hit a bit of scoring form in the last couple of weeks. You have to be careful with that because you, know, you can't just go on recency bias when you're, when you're looking at selection. Um, but he is in good form. He's obviously coming in on a high. And um, he's been with us before. We know his character. We know his personality. He's a good guy around the around the group. Team are playing well. He's playing for a club that are really well coached, and uh, and and the team are in a in a good moment. Um, that was Gareth Southgate talking about why he picked uh, Ollie Watkins. He mentioned the words recency bias. There, we have to be careful not to go on recency bias. But he's coming in on a high. He's a good guy with a good personality. His team is very well coached. He's got seven goals this season in all competition from twelve games, three assists uh, so far in the Premier League. Um, it's not all about form, is it? And uh, there's a lot of people sort of texting and saying Southgate gets away with so much. His whole mantra, when he got the job, I'll pick players on form, something he consistently went against. Yes, he brought in Bowen and Watkins, but yet again, he picks other players that should be nowhere near the squad. Henderson, Phillips, Maguire, whereas Ward-Prowse, Longstaff, Byrne, Gordon should all get a chance. Oh, and I guess he picked two injured players as well. But can you, I mean, it was interesting because I thought Simon just said to me, did he ever actually say that yeah. as in pick players on form? Uh, and I found a quote for 2017 in which he says, I never pick on reputation. Form has to come into it. Yeah. You have to look at the opposition, the type of game you're expecting, select the players that are best suited to that. Back in March, he said, it's impossible to pick players just on form alone, um, it, although it has to come into it at some point. So he, he, he sort of said it's a bit of both, really. Well, yeah, because it's a bit like the chains of Jacob Marley being dragged behind him, isn't it? With the people suggesting that he says things that he doesn't actually say. I'm the first person to be critical of Southgate when I think it's fair to be critical. But I'm not entirely sure hoisting him by something that is not quite what he said 
I think is is reasonable. I don't think there's anything unreasonable in what he said about an element of re, a recency bias. I think you've got to price in as an England manager, like he says, who's doing what when? Are they a flash in the pan? Does it are they really international caliber? Um, and not bend and breeze with what sections of the media think you should pick for your squad. You're the England manager. Over the years, we've always had this, that the media thinks it's going to pick the England squad. He's the manager. He should pick it, and then he should live and die by decisions. And I don't think really, as much as I'm quite happy to, to, to talk about Southgate not being the winner that other people might think he's going to be, I don't think to take him to task on the reasons for selecting people like or, um, Ollie Watkins or not is a is a fair swipe at him. It can't just be on form, can it? Because if you're building a squad for a major international tournament in eight months' time, you can't just pick the best 23 players at this moment in time. Because that, if you do that every month, is never going to give you the semblance of a coherent squad when you go into a major tournament, correct? For, for Gareth, he's got important game qualification games that he needs to, to win. Now, you look at to John Stones, Harry Maguire... They're not playing games at the moment, are they? But no. they, th nonetheless, they're in the squad and they'll probably feature in these important they're not, games. They're not the only ones. That, yeah, okay, so, so, so we know that they're tried and trusted Phillips, players, aren't Ph they? Phillips and Maguire aren't playing, but they're in the squad. But Mason Mount is playing. He's not in the squad. You would suggest that over the course of the last couple of years, he's been what you would describe as a favourite, but he's left him out. Raheem Sterling will fall into that category, but he's not in the squad this time around. So it's not... Does that debunk the myth that Gareth Southgate doesn't make the big calls when necessary? This, this is down to opinion, isn't it? Mason Mount's been has been out injured for quite a while. Sterling's had his has his issues. Um, I think John Stones was quite magnificent at the end of last season. He's sitting on the bench right now. These are players that we need. We've got that's a in that area, that department of the pitch. We've got quite we've got four new, relatively new internationals playing in those positions. So the manager wants you know he wants experience in those areas. So I fully understand that. So yeah, there has to be an element of well, who are the players that I can trust and believe in the ones that have the experience. We know that they can come back and recover quickly. Aaron Maguire is one of those. Stone's probably another. And I'll build my team around those players. But in the main, if you're an Ollie Watkins, you're in on form, aren't you? Recently, he scored seven goals. And, and Callum Wilson, we know, when he's not available, it tends to be Ollie Watkins that comes into the squad. So there's nothing strange about what we're seeing at the moment. It's continuity. Hmm. I was fighting for Anthony Gordon. Now, Bowen's should gone he, Should he have been instead of Rashford? Well, it's... That, it, Pretty well. I, I think he probably should have been. But then I had a good look at Ra uh, Manchester United yesterday to look at them to see that they're slow and ponderous build up. And actually, Rashford might be one of the only shining lights in the team. Although everything he does is so rushed and 100 miles an hour, I'd like to see him play with much more control. But probably Gareth feels okay, this might be the player that I do, I need on the break when we really want to go after teams because we're quite measured, aren't we? We're Grealish and we're Foden and with Saka. But I need some pace and some explosion. But uh, Anthony Gordon's chance will come because he was that magnificent for Newcastle in midweek. But I understand the job of, of bringing all these people, and let's not forget Bowen as well, recently scored five goals. He's coming in, and he's been there in the past. So you have this competition. I think it's healthy, but there are one or two positions, like your Maguires and Stones, that they're kind of set in stone. We need those players because they're really experienced. Do you think Rashford should be in the squad? Um, no, not on current form. Um, and I think you have to price that in to the thinking alongside the other things that we've discussed. I mean, it's great that he travels at speed. He's a speedboat without a brain at the moment. And and we've seen this before with, with Rashford. Whatever the distraction is, whatever harsh, the reason yeah. is, wherever the side, whenever United fall off, there are very few players like Rashford, who's a consistent theme of a United side that's been underachieving for a few years, albeit they had a decent season last year. When they're in ascent, players like Rashford come to the fore. 
when they're not in ascent, players like Rashford disappear into the background. You need people that are going to be able to take you to a different space rather than acclimatise to poor, poor, poor performances. No, I don't necessarily think that he merits being in the side, but I'm also not that troubled by it. Um, you know, last week Martin was talking about Anthony Gordon and was talking about Anthony Gordon in place of Marcus Rashford when we were trying to work out who would be going in the squad. Look, I mean, Southgate is in a decent place and I think he's earned the right to kind of do what he wants without the necessity for every aspect of, to be scrutinised, every aspect of words that might have been said once upon a time, taken out of context, thrown back at him as a weapon to, to beat him up. I'm not sure that that's particularly constructive. He's what we've got and the team is doing fine. So I don't really understand the issue. And and ultimately, if after the game these team, our teams don't perform at the level that an England side that has led us to believe they're capable of, then by all means we can have these conversations. Uh, Watkins is the second best English striker in stats behind Kane over the last three seasons. Fact, says Lee and Stourbridge. Um, I think uh, probably behind Wilson and... Well, Wilson's goals per game ratio is pretty impressive, but maybe yeah. he's played more games than... Than, um, than Wilson over that period in time if you go back three years uh, but him and, and Wilson obviously regular goal scorers and I think that's really important to have those in the team um, do you think the criticism then of Marcus Rashford is unfair despite the fact that you were going to drop him last week? No I think I think he's not hitting the heights he was Four uh, goals in 18 Premier League games why does he undulate so much? Well because of the team he's playing in right now they've lost four Premier League games Manchester United they've lost two games in the Champions League they, they're, they've got this this way of playing out from the back where the goalkeeper is in in possession of the ball there's no solutions in front of him they can't manage midfield and, and boss in midfield and when it comes to him it looks like he's like in a frantic rush to try and, and get Manchester United out of trouble I think he's a, a little bit of a victim of where he finds himself Well how does the goalkeeper playing out from the back affect him making bad decisions when he gets well, they, into the final third? Maybe I'm just telling you about how the, the, the whole team is in the fabric and the mood so he's at the back waiting he's becoming impatient um, it looks better when they go into the big man up top. I'm very impressed with Hoyland, uh, Hoyland. Hoyland at the top of the team, by the way. He looks a real deal. Um, and there was a very good goal scored, actually. You see the ball in from Rashford for his first goal was quite, quite a magnificent. So there are pockets of really good play in there. And it does feel that Gareth Southgate does really, doesn't he? he? Rashford is one of the players that he really believes in. And he's been in many competitions and many squads. So that when it comes to it, the manager does have that that opportunity to pick his favourite player. If he wants a favourite player or his choice, he takes him and he thinks he's ahead of the group at the moment. I think he's I think he's on looking over his shoulder um, and he probably needs to produce in the next international because Saka might not be available and all of a sudden he's going to come in. There's two. There's a friendly game, of course. Then we've got Italy, who are not far behind us with a game in hand. So there's, this is a proper game coming up now. Uh, Dave, the Liverpool fan, Southgate always talks about experience, but do you not think there's enough experience in the squad now with Maguire, Henderson, without Maguire, Henderson and Phillips? Some of these players have played two plus major tournaments now. Aren't these games perfect to give new players experience to see if they're ready for tournament football? Well, I think Martin has just said, you know, the Australia game may well be a chance for experimentation, but that game against Italy, that's got to be done, hasn't it? They've got to get through that without losing. Yeah. Absolutely, and I suspect they probably will because Italy are, no, are not a great side, are they? They've just lost their manager as well, and he's gone off to manage Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, absolutely. Mm. So with that in mind, we should take advantage of that situation with Italy because we've already achieved an outcome in their part of the world that people might not have priced into their thinking, and ultimately we don't want to unwind that by not getting a result in our part of the world. Look, this is qualifying. England are going to qualify. The object of the aim is to qualify. And then we talk about tournament football. I'm not suggesting that we need to be remiss or casual or laissez-faire about the idea that you pick the best players in the qualifiers 
but we are going to qualify. And all of this diagnosis and this paralysis by analysis, when we're really looking at a team that's going to go to a tournament and be more focused on whether they can win this tournament rather than our route to it. I don't know, it feels like there is, and I've been at the front of the queue for being critical of Gareth Southgate. When it comes to picking squads and getting us through qualifying groups, I find it very difficult to get engaged in the conversation that we should be overcritical of what Southgate does. I don't think does. we should be overcritical, but we're just asking why, why certain players are in, why certain pay, because players he wants to Because he wants to pick them and he's the England manager. That's I think what's really discussion. interesting is you've got people like uh, Henderson, Phillips and Maguire, and people ask a lot while they're in the squad. But I, I mean, I, I did this last international break, we were talking about it and suggesting that he's really lucky that actually in the front area of the team, he can leave out Mount, he can leave out Sterling, he could leave out Rashford if he wanted to, because he's got so many other players that can play in those positions. Mm. He can demand more from them we should in order to get into the squad but the, in, those other, in the other positions where we've got mm. Maguire for example the centre-half position he needs to rely on Harry Maguire because there's not a plethora of centre-halves that no, can play right. in that zone No, uh, Gurhi as well came in did really well didn't he and, and Donk um, you have to say Donk was really good in the, in, in the last yeah. yeah so I mean what we should be doing obviously the producer chooses the topic but I would like to talk about Foden and Grealish and Madison <laughs> and Bellingham and Alexander Arnold, they have wonderful talents. Your 100% essential download, outspoken with White and Jordan. England against Australia is next Friday night. In fact, this time next week. And uh, we're delighted to say that the head coach of the Australian national team, Graham Arnold, joins us on the line now. Hi, Graham. Hi, guys. How are we? Um, thank you very much for joining us. Just explain to us um, why, first of all, you've decided to take up this friendly against England. You're also playing New Zealand here, aren't you? Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, we're going through a bit of a rebuild stage at the moment. And uh, after the World Cup in Qatar, um, it was quite important uh, to have some friendlies and some strong friendly games. Uh, I don't like calling them friendlies when you play against England because it's a serious fixture. And... Uh, so we've always, uh, and I wanted to play against top opposition and uh, obviously having the opportunity to play at Wembley Stadium for the first time in the history of uh, Australian football, it's going to be a, a huge night. Um, you've named a 23-man squad uh, as you prepare to take on England next week. You made a few changes as well. Recall for Massimo Luongo, started the season well with Ipswich Town. Hasn't played for the Socceroos for the best part of four years. Why is the time right to bring him back? Yeah, well, look... Uh, when you when you're coaching national team, you pick uh, pick players on form and and fitness. And uh, Mass went through a couple of years of injuries, and uh, yeah, he, he didn't have a great time in that. But uh, now he's at Ipswich. He's uh, doing exceptionally well. We've lost <clears throat> in retirement Aaron Moy, and uh, we need a, another good, experienced player in. And Massimo Luongo gives us that. Um, we've had this debate uh, today, and we've had this quite a lot over the course of uh, international breaks. How much do you pick a squad based on form, and how much of it is on with an eye to building a team towards a tournament? Because you can't just pick the best in form 23 players at that moment in time, can you? Well, I think that uh, one thing you have to do is, or what I try to do, is pick players uh, that are fit, uh, that have got match minutes, that, that are in form, because. Uh, you know, you're playing for your nation and it is a, the, the highest accolade a player can have. And uh, picking those players is, a, is the most important thing. Of, of course, we build a team culture within the Socceroos, but also within that uh, the players are always feeling welcome when they come in. But uh, when I have to drop players, it's always hard to to make those decisions. But I make sure I give them a telephone call and explain why. So form is uh, very important. 
The Matildas very successful in the summer and uh, became sort of national icons during that period of the Women's World Cup in Australia. How can football as a whole get a bump off that success, do you think? Well, you know, I think what we did last year uh, in, in Qatar and uh, what the Matildas did uh, now back in Australia has been exceptional for the sport. But uh, it's easy to, you know, sit there and look at what the two top teams have done in the nation. It's more about grassroots, I think, that uh, and pathways that we really need to work hard on uh, with our development of players. We are, you know, we are the fifth most popular sport in Australia. Um, when I say that uh, in terms of viewing, but... Um, you know, with grassroots, we, we have the highest participation in sport and we just need to build those pathways and give the kids the opportunity to fulfil their dreams. When you look at the development of Australian international football, Graham, obviously we've seen in the past, you know, we've seen stellar names like Harry Kuehl and Tim Cahill, who I nearly signed for Palace years ago, and John Aloisi, who I also wanted to sign, and Mark Vaduka. It's a yeah. different Australia now, isn't it, in terms of you don't have these star names, but the output seems to be getting better i mean you did a, you had a great world cup where you know you gave the eventual you know winners of the world cup a game i mean where is australian football or soccer if that's what you want to call it in terms of its international status and that's what i mean i think that uh it's always good to be able to support and and look at what the senior national team is doing but it's more about the juniors <clears throat> when you say those players that you mention it's uh you know, those players did it the hard way. And, and that was in the 90s and early 2000s. They came across to Europe. They developed it, the Australian Institute of Sport, which we don't have anymore. Uh, and they developed in 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 that type of environment. And then they've come overseas and they've obviously played at top clubs at Liverpool and, and Leeds and, and those type of clubs. And, and, you know, they inspired a lot of kids back in, in Australia. But grassroots is... Uh, is the most important domestically, what's the football right. like, Graham? I mean, I years ago, uh, when I was over in Sydney, wanted to buy Northern Spirit and wanted yep. to get a feeder team set up for Palace in England. But when you look at the football and you look at some of the managers that have gone over there and we look at some of my some of my players that went over and played in Australia, there's always this feeling that the level domestically is quite some way off. Is that, a, is that an arrogance from our side of the world, thinking that actually you're miles off or am I in the ballpark of that you've got a quality that needs to be addressed in the, your domestic football leagues? Now, look, I think domestically um, it's getting better, but the, the big problem for me is we don't play enough football. We only play 25 rounds a year, and I'm trying to coach a national team where the uh, local league has four months off. And uh, so for the September, October windows, FIFA windows, you have, as you notice in that squad, I only picked one or two players from Australia because mm. they're not much fit, they're not ready to go. Right. But I'm pretty sure if we played much more football like the boys do in Scotland or here in the Championship, I'm not saying that they're at that level of English Premier League, but if they were playing much more football back in Australia, the game would only grow. Graham, just uh, just looking at what you did in the World Cup, which was really fantastic, wasn't it? A really good effort. You went out to the eventual winners, Argentina. Um, yeah. How is it that you're going to be able to beat England next week? Because Wembley will be, I mean, it's a big expectation. There's a, just a few days from a really big game for England. How are you going to win that game? Because it looks like you've got one or two players coming out. More, you say, is, is dropped out. We know Suter is a player that plays here in the England. Um, what are the players? Who are the players that are actually going to catch the eye in this one? It's a mentality. You know, it's, um, yeah, we know England's a good side, but more of the focus is on ourselves and what we're going to do. And we're going to go out and, 
expect to win the game and, and go out there and give it everything that we've got and uh, make our na- nation proud. You know, we everyone's back in Australia still talks about the 3-1 win we had at Upton Park. And uh, I was fortunate that night, I was assistant coach at uh, Frank Farina that we won that game. And with that same type of mentality and attitude of going out there, being brave to play and uh, taking it to, to to England. And we know they're, as I said, we know they're a good team, but we've got our strengths as well. Uh, what have you made of uh, Ange Postacoglu's success so far, not only at Tottenham, but at Celtic as well? Do you hope that that will open the door for more Australian coaches to work in Europe? Look, it's fantastic. And uh, the whole nation is absolutely proud of Ange and, and the pathway that he's leading. I, I, I see this as no different than when Craig Johnson uh, left Australia in, in the early 80s and came across to, uh, to Europe or to England and played and it opened the pathways for the rest of us to come across uh, to, to Europe as well. And, you know, you just mentioned, I heard you mention that Kevin Muscat's on the list for the Glasgow Rangers and we've got some real good young coaches coming through. And I think there's one thing that people do forget over here is, you know, those type of coaches, uh, you know, they played in Europe or they played in the UK for 10 years. We learned the hard way here in Europe. So we've got a lot of European uh, English experience that uh, with managing and coaching, uh, they're very good coaches and Ange is uh, the leader of that pathway. Uh, Graham, thank you very much for coming on the programme. Good luck uh, next week at Wembley. Hope you enjoy the experience. I must say, I, don't hope, I hope you don't win, but you know, I hope you enjoy the experience. Of course we will. Course we will. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. It's England Friday night. Graham Arnold, the Australia coach, joining us live uh, this morning. Uh, then they play New Zealand the following Tuesday mm-hmm. at uh, the GTEC Community Stadium for the Soccer Ashes. You ever heard of that? I have not. The Soccer Ashes. Uh, but apparently, they haven't played it for a little while. But there was a trophy that was found in a garage clear-out earlier in this uh, this year. Um, it's it's housed in an elaborate wooden casket constructed from a combination of rewera and Australian maple. And the trophy contains the ashes of cigars smoked by Australian captain Alex Gibb and New Zealand captain George Campbell following the first meeting between the two nations in Australia in June 1923. There you go, wow. a bit of a history lesson for you. Yeah, in a garage, yeah? Found it in a garage cell, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Good morning, lovely day in London town today. Um, white wispy crowds on that beautiful blue sky. Arsenal hosting Manchester City this Sunday. It's the first true test of the season for both these two teams I think and the Gunners have come in closing the gap from last season it's now just a point do they have to win to show everybody that they're going to be title contenders well a win would be nice wouldn't it you know if you think of what but do happened, they need to send a message I said it's about staying in, in contention uh, if you can win against Man City then you go a long way to to trying to get there. Have they improved enough from last season when they couldn't beat Manchester City? Well, let's just look at last season and those head-to-head games where Arsenal lost all three of them. First of all, in the FA Cup up at the Etihad and then that game in February back at the Emirates. And I think we learned a great deal in that game because it's a game actually, just to take you back to it, where Edison was actually booked for time-wasting. Such was the dominance of Arsenal in that game. But they lost the game. Is he trying to put pressure on referees? They lost the, the game. They lost... No, I'm trying to tell you, explain how much possession Arsenal had. Okay. So strangely, they got battered in the strangely, half. strangely with when um, Pep, we know what a master he is, but he put Bernardo Silva to left back, and for an hour we couldn't really work it out. But once he changed it, he, he took a Kanji off the bench, he put Aki back out to left back. Mm. They really cleared up and they dominated the game and they beat Arsenal really, I think, quite comfortably as yes, they did when they played at, at the, the Etihad and they I, won four one. I was at the Etihad and I thought it was it was it was quite a disappointing. Yes, but they us. started that game with the team they finished with at the Emirates because Pep had worked out tactically what he needed to do. Going into this one, Arsenal without Martinelli, possibly without Saka, but they've got they've got Rice coming into that midfield. We know. I'm I'm looking more at what happened at, at last weekend against Wolves because if Wolves can can beat City, then Arsenal can. But it's in that midfield where I think the biggest concern is because Rodri is not available this weekend. Um, in midweek, actually, they returned to Lewis again, which they did last season when they were in a bit of trouble, didn't they? The manager Manchester City played Rico Lewis in a midfield position, he didn't did. they? Yeah. And Foden came back into a central position. I think it's important that Bernardo Silva and Grealish was there. But really, there's prominent players missing now in that so, city so midfield. How, so how, how do Arsenal beat them then? Without Saka, <laughs> which is a possibility, without Martinelli, they don't have that sort of raw pace on the flanks. How do they beat them? Is it just... Well, you're hoping that Rodri's not available, so they'll win the midfield. Well, battle. I think it's about the calibre of player that you're up against. Okay, I think we have to underline the fact that there's people missing. So if we're going to say that Alvarez and Nunes and, and Kovacic are playing in that midfield, that was De Bruyne last year, Gundogan and Rodri. Okay, so who's available is very important for Arsenal. The calibre of player they're up against, but it's what a team they can put forward themselves. I think it's really important that Saka's available. I think it's important as well that Martinelli comes back. And then I think Arsenal got a really good opportunity to win this game in the wide positions because those players have the, have the ability it's, in a 1v1 so situation to cause the problems. the analysis that Martin's just provided for the two games because, I mean, I went to the game at um, the um, 
Emirates and uh, you know it was a very compelling game but Man City once they turned it on you know yeah. Tommy Asser was all over the place once they turned it on they they, they the De Bruyne made... goal wasn't it what a yeah, wonderful goal yeah absolutely but I thought the two games were turning on two different things I thought the fact that Arsenal didn't have enough of an offensive option at home created a problem for them and I think away from home their defensive options let them down Rob Holding was Saliba. Saliba wasn't available yeah, for the back you know, end of and, the season and critical. Eddie Nketiah is a, a tribute act to Ian Wright not good enough for Arsenal and that's the challenges that Arsenal have look I think the problem for Arsenal is that they don't have enough goals in their side from a centre forward that would make the difference for them to be able to win this league but I don't think that winning or losing against Manchester City this weekend determines who wins the league Arsenal did not lose the league last year because they lost two games to Manchester City they lost the league because when it came down to it they threw away games against Liverpool they lost against the West Hams or dropped points against the Southamptons in the world and went on this three or four game run where they opened the door for whatever reason whether people want to make it about emotional intelligence and over celebrating I think it's about a lack of quality in certain key components of Arsenal's team last season Do you think there's a mental block about it though because if you go back over the course of the last few seasons Mikel Arteta did get the better of Pep in an FA Cup semi-final many moons ago when he first took over the club but apart from that in the Premier League he's never beaten him I don't think there's a mental block I think there's an awareness of that you're playing arguably the best team in the world I mean let's have it right you've mm -hmm. got I think the best coach in world football, you've got the best centre-forward in world football, you've got the best backroom staff probably in world football, and you've got the most money. It's no surprise. And Arsenal came second to that. Without that team in the league, Arsenal would have won the league last year. And I think that's a remarkable achievement from Arteta in real terms. It's interesting you say that, actually, isn't it? Because the fact that we're sitting here talking about the fact that Arsenal are competing, they could be the challenges to Manchester City for a second successive season, actually is a tribute to not only Arteta, but the way that they built the squad behind the scenes. Yeah, and, the, and have the winning games of football is now becoming a habit with this group. But Arsenal's team is evolving, so there's there's no Xhaka anymore, is there? Jorginho played in this game last time round. Enkete played and Jesus didn't. I'm talking in the game at the Emirates. So it's just it, it's just interesting for me to see what impact now someone like Declan Rice can have. He hasn't played in this game. He now wants to be assertive. And, and I think there's an opportunity. And I, what was really impressive, though, for Man City in midweek was the way that they shut the door on that in a really difficult game against Leipzig. And they've come back and they've won again because when you're in the when you're in a group of t in a team that keeps winning, and I've been in that group, and when you always worry that if you w lose a game, how are you going to cope? Because you're just simply not used to that, are you? Well, Manchester City are pretty football. good at it, they've and they lost, lost two recently, they've and that's lost. almost a crisis, by the way. When they lose at Newcastle and they lose at Wolves for a team that never loses, so there was a big examination going on there, and they've come back really well. And I was hoping, perhaps from an Arsenal point of view, that if they didn't get the result at Leipzig, this could be the moment for Arsenal to really attack. But it still is anyway, because you want to make, you want to against your biggest rival, leave a little bit on them, let them see the quality you have. Now, last year, and Jim had this interview last year with De Bruyne, and De Bruyne said after that game at the Emirates, "Wow, they really reminded me of of us." In the past, the energy they had, we had to slow the game down, we had to do it in a different way. I went and played further up the pitch and they found a way to beat Arsenal. Arsenal need to return to that form. Last week was a good result, but they need to get back. They just lost a game in midweek. Yeah, they weren't particularly good in the second half of that game. Um, I thought they were run out of ideas a little bit and obviously the, the injury to Saka cost them. You talk about Manchester City, they're looking to avoid successive Premier League defeats for the first time in almost five years. They usually bounce back. In fact, every time they've lost a game since December 2018, Simon, there's 25 of them that they've lost during that period in the Premier League. The next game, the subsequent game, they've had what results? Do you know? Five or something, was it? Five, five nil? 
No, they've won 24 of the following 25 yeah. games. One draw. Well, they, they never we lose do know that. a second We know that because that's what they're about. That's mentality, yeah. isn't it? And, and, and that's the mentality that, that Arsenal have got to get. That, that's the mentality that their coach instilled in them. That's the mentality that by having the opportunity to buy some of the best players in the world and having significant resources to be able to do it, that's the mentality that's encouraged and then it developed by having a centre-forward that's the best in the world that will go and get you 35 goals. All of these are why Man City at the top of the tree. Arsenal and the change in Arsenal over the last two or three years with Arteta going from what I felt was someone that had the chops to someone that was ultimately all platitudes to someone that made a big decision with Aubameyang which I think changed the direction of travel to someone now that has a football club that people are questioning there's a debate I wrote an article this week in the mail about Arsenal's emotivity and people using it and weaponising it saying they over-celebrate Emotional intelligence, I think, is one thing. I think most football teams are driven by emotion. Brian Clough made, made great stock out of emotion being a fundamental part of it. And I think the emotion that drives Arsenal and the challenges that Arsenal have are hand in hand. I think there were, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the idea of needing to give Kai Havertz a penalty to get him going, but I don't suppose they'd have done it if it was nil nil in a tight game. They were strolling past Bournemouth at 2 0, and it was an easy thing to, for them to have done to build him up to me, perhaps being a valuable member of the staff rather than this hang on a second, is that a tax loss we just bought? The point of this is that Arsenal aren't as good as Manchester City, but they will not lose this league by losing to Manchester City on the weekend. They will lose it but because still, over Sam, the season, Man City will be a better side in all of the games. But you look about the dominance of their squad. I mean, they still managed to go to Leipzig and they've had Stones was on the bench, Kovacic was on the bench, Nunes was on the bench, Doku was on the bench and Aki was on the bench. It's like, these are all players that are probably going to play a major part at the weekend. So it's the quality of the... Where's Arsenal? I'm sorry, but they weren't in that luxurious position, were they? They're having to play Saka in a game where maybe they wanted to rest him. But they well, they could have rested him for the Bournemouth game the week before, couldn't they? Well, when Trossard's been injured and Martinelli's been injured, so they they could rotate those three. Both of them have been injured. So Saka's had to play pretty, pretty well every game. Has to play. For the last 87 Premier League games, he's had to play in every single one, has he? And all the Europa League games last so season. So is that his fault? Are you going to argue now that... Well, I'm not arguing. I'm asking you a no, question no, because he has, had yeah. he has had criticism, Icardo, for playing him too... Much. You, I think, I think he's got months. to play him because Martin, he's, he's Arsenal's best player. You've got to be in this camp. You're on one hand forever talking about player welfare. No, 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 hold on and when it doesn't suit well, your argument, let's you have can't games. argue against... Let's have fewer games. 87 he's games playing. the kids played. Yeah, but I've asked, for fewer, fewer I've asked for fewer games. But, there no, but, he's but played, I want my best players in the... In the so but, what does Arteta but, want? But he can rotate. You've Over the 87 games that he's been an ever-present in, there will be games that he could either have been rested for, he could have been taken off earlier in the game. There is a question to be asked and answered. And now you've got a player that broke down and you'd be the first person if it was somewhere else in a different football club to say well this is the reason why he's just played 87 games because it's in the Arsenal territory you don't want to attack it no not really I think I'm, I'm looking at the situation okay he didn't play in the last international game Gareth Southgate said he rests him he doesn't he played not, all the, he's played national managers. No, no, but, but everyone's, manager. everyone's got to be in the pot and the mix for that player haven't they to so Mikel Arteta yeah. needs to be more like Southgate no I think Arteta in an ideal world if he had a bigger squad and other players he could use and he hasn't been able to do that this year because Martin and Trossard have been injured they're the two players that would have probably gone into that position so that's the pro that's his issue. He has been taking him off in games, by the way. The last three games he's come off. He's come off injured the last three games, but he didn't. After seventy five minutes, off, he came off against. Off he's tried to get him off. He got him off against PSV when they the job was done. So he has been trying to to manage that situation. You can't tell me the squad's. I mean, not Simon than it tells me been. that. Look at the squad. Look, look, Danny, the beach. Da Danny comes in. Danny Murphy and Sunes come in here and say, "Oh, get on with it. They've got loads of games." So now we get a player who's getting injured. You're you're saying that Arteta's out of order for playing him. Hold didn't on, say he's hold out of order. On. I was asking you whether or not, bearing in mind that you are big on player welfare. You thought it was the right thing to do he to play him down to pl at Bournemouth and in Lance. In an ideal world, he needs to be managed. But 
this is a difficult situation for Arteta because he wants to keep pace with Ma- with with Man City. He wants to do well in the Champions League, and you're having to play your could best. Could he? Place. Could he have beat Bournemouth without Saka? Bearing in mind that now you've got Emil Smith Rowe coming back, you've got Fabio Vieira, who he obviously well, he trusts. He obviously felt that decision wasn't, Enketia, wasn't worth Reece taking. Nelson. You've got players that are coming back. You got him off the pitch as soon as the game was won. I prefer the best players when they, when possible, can play, win the game as quick as you can, and get them rested up. But he went three 0 up after fifty three minutes. And he took him off after seventy six. Probably should have gone minutes. off. Probably should have gone off earlier. In a perfect world, I'd have taken him straight off as soon as they're free up. In terms of uh, the game on Sunday, you're going to go. Yes, I'm there. Yeah, yeah looking, looking forward, forward to it. it. Yeah, really am. Um, how do you see it going? What's going to happen? I think Arsenal are going to win this game. Do you think Saka's going to play? I think Saka will play. Yeah. I'm hoping Martinelli has, uh, yeah, gets back. We're down to the medical team right now, isn't it? Has been some good news this week, by the way, Simon. I don't know if you uh, have seen, allowed this to go under the radar a little bit, but uh, by Manchester City uh, losing last Saturday, it means it's unlikely that anyone will go through the season invincible again. So well, another, Spurs, Spurs might be another, able to. another yeah. year, another it might be relief. VAR assisted, but Spurs might go through the season on VAR. <laughs> <laughs> essential download outspoken with White and Jordan after a week of debate following that Diaz offside goal are the PGMOL in for a weekend of scrutiny could it be the most scrutinised VAR weekend yet Um, let's hear from Gareth Southgate because he says he didn't even want VAR and my first experience of it, we're still not sure if the Jesse Lingard goal that knocked us out of a semi-final was uh, was legit or not. So I don't like it. I think we should just accept referees' decisions. But I also know that we're unlikely to go back to a world where where we don't have technology as uh, as part of that decision-making process. So yeah, but it, it was never going to resolve every issue, and uh, um, I I don't think there is any solution that will that will achieve that. Um. Is there any chance that technology will be removed from the game or are we gone too far? I doubt it. I do like the way that Gareth Southgate frames that particular analysis that we should just go back to a game where referees on the field make that decision and we all just accept it. The reasons why we have technology is because people flatly refuse to accept it. And the game moved to such a level because of the televisual side of things where the interrogation and subsequent vilification of referees reached such a point that there was a need to enhance the support mechanisms. Has it enhanced the support mechanism? Well, I think based upon the weekend's performances you you could make the argument that no, it hasn't. Of course if you look at the outcomes, and people will always debate the outcomes, I think there's clear evidence that VAR has got more right than it's got wrong. It's eliminated more errors and given more goals that potentially may not have been given as a result of it. And there will be isolated instances of the the exception. And of course, this horror story on the weekend is that people's refusal to accept that human error will always form a part of everything that involves human interaction is a ridiculous mischaracterisation the idea that the media and certain segments of the media that had no desire to have this VAR have never really changed their views. We we know the spontaneity side of things. We know that argument. But the argument to be advanced that the only sport of significance in the world that shouldn't embrace significant technology is football is an embarrassment to the sport and shouldn't be able to find a solution that involves people looking towards 
improving rather than constantly criticising, constantly finding a way to diminish. Now, I know that the argument I'm making is completely disarmed by the ridiculousness of what happened last weekend. I mean, you can't price that into tech. You can't price that into refereeing. But surely, but Simon, you're you're, you're an intelligent man, and, and you know, yeah. and you know, and and Rumor you've gone it. through you've gone through businesses. You've yeah. worked in different yeah. industries. You know that sometimes you make a decision with the best intentions. Once you've seen the fruits of that decision, you yeah. sometimes go hold on a second. That didn't work, and the prudent thing for you to do, and you've done it, is you've gone stop, pivot. We'll go back and of do course. it a different way. But the version, but the problem is, <laughs> we've moved the argument and debate on from vilifying and condemning referees for making decisions and doing it dawn till dusk, and then changing that to now vilifying the next part of the refereeing food chain, which is the VAR booth and what's gone on there. I think we've also got a little bit uh, angry with the way the laws are written. I think that's a, another well, that's big a problem. But that's a different discussion entirely. That's but about, I think that engenders a lot of anger well, around I, what decisions it, are made. It may yeah. well be, but we do have a sense of entitlement that we have to understand every aspect of every every single thing that goes on. Sometimes in life, the authority is the authority. It's pretty crap if you can't understand the laws of the game, though, isn't it? If they change them so significantly, so often, well, that you can't but, understand but, but, the laws of the game. Isn't this about competency? So it was, is, in, yeah. it was incompetent, incompetent, wasn't it? What, it was, what was. they did. It, it, so it wasn't was. necessarily. This, this doesn't happen every yeah. week, though. Does so it, yeah, it? but so we can improve this, can't we? So yeah. the language wasn't good enough. That the, the check complete. No one knew what they were. It was complete for. Yeah. So that's a complete breakdown of communication, isn't it? So we need to improve on that. TMO does it exceptionally well. We're watching a World Cup at the weekend. Some fantastic fixtures coming up. Look at the way they do that. So we need to be much more professional. So we can. We can, we're not just moaning. We 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 have every right. To, to, to want it to be improved. Every we can weekend. demand better standards, can't well, we? Of course we can. And that's right and constructive to point towards where those standards can be enhanced. Like Danny Murphy was talking about the other day about the idea that the VAR should ask the referee what's the on field decision. On field decision is what? Because if he'd have asked the referee on field decision, he wouldn't have thought he was adjudicating a goal that was. Onside, would he? In rugby, that's what they do, isn't it? They say, yeah. you see, the, 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 the referee, on-field referee, says, can I give this try? And the TMO will tell them yes yeah, or no. because they communicate. But why was it, though, that the people who make these rules, why was it that they handcuff themselves to such an extent where they don't have a, an, a, a fifth interjection where they can say, for on-field circumstances, something's happened that we didn't expect, we can come in and stop the game. Instead, they make but they a do. rule, but, but, they but that's do. pathetic, they, isn't it? Because you do. want fairness. But they have, a, they have a protocol, right? And in this instance, somebody needed... Because the moment, if you listen to the audio, and it was evident before we heard the audio what, was, what had gone on, but the audio just confirmed it, that there was going to be a penny drop very quickly that actually we've just adjudicated the wrong decision. Three seconds after the restart. Right. So they, they, you can hear it in the, in the audio. So what it needed to be was a culture of somebody was brave enough to go s ignore the protocol Stop the game. Well, the operator was seen to be the, uh, the best decision maker in the And the problem with that is, is that you've got to be able to have a culture in referees that A, they have enough leadership and capability to want to make those decisions, and B, they don't do it whenever they feel like Applying it. The law Simon, Simon, the Simon's right, though, isn't he? Because actually what became apparent when you listened to that VAR audio was that the VAR and the AVAR were more concerned about breaking the protocol and getting in trouble for that Correct. than they were worrying about the legitimate outcome of the game. So we're losing the essence, aren't we, of, of, of sport being honest? So Howard and Webb has got to change that. I don't well, think it's, I don't think it's a lack of honesty. I think it's a no, it's culture. Not honesty. I think, I think they're straight-jacketed by protocol. It's a pivot, isn't it? In terms of a set of rules they, they don't want to break. To I tell you what, would be they nice. didn't create them. It's, it's yeah. created by the IFAB. The IFAB are trying to straight-jacket referees into making them do certain things. The VAR protocol. Scenario. The VAR protocol. 
not protocol. just the VAR protocol, yeah, but, that's but the, the laws of the game as well we are too prescriptive. We need to help them more, don't we? You need more instinctive refereeing. Well, here's, one, here's, here's refereeing. one now, because we're about to listen to Howard Webb, aren't we, on Monday. And what I would like to talk to him about is, what is this not unnatural or natural state that you're supposed to be in when we're giving handballs away? I really like to get together with the, the people that make the laws for the game. But because you... because I if my hand is up in the air to make a block and I make the block, okay? We had one recently where Gomez makes that block. In, in the, the Luton versus Wolves Luton game. versus Wolves game. They, and they it comes that, off his leg that, and hits his hand, okay? But he so, went into the challenge with his arm in the air and they say that's an unnatural position. They can't, How do they know? The PGMO, where do you think these rules come from? You have IFAB, which has people, which had people like Marco van Basten sitting on there. And Wenger. But I'm just, I'm saying to you, there's a grey area of what is natural and what is unnatural. Because if I naturally have to put my arm there to make the block, it's a natural position. There's subjectivity. And unfortunately, with human interaction, you're going to have subjectivity unless we want to build an AI-based game where we put robots on the pitch and in, ensure that actually everything comes down to no subjectivity. It comes down to the ultimate equation, which is we have zero in the way of human interaction. And we can have that, and we can build towards that. And if that's the value added that we think we're going to be able to achieve, but when you're sitting there saying, I wish if, I was in that conversation, so, people like but, you but are you, in how, that how conversation. How is it handball, though, if it balloons off your leg? But you're having your a hand. conversation that is not being set by people, not only in this room, but even in the PGMOL. That's not being set by them. If you look at what handball is... In most of the other countries in Europe, and we compare it, we're actually more lenient than them. And you can't have one set of rules in the Premier League on a are Saturday we? and are one we? set of rules Do you think on a so? Did you Absolutely. not see Atletico Madrid game in midweek? There was a game where I'm watching the game where there was an nine offside. times out of ten. How many times the ball people hits get sent a player on the head? Hits a player on the head and goes and hits his hand. Go they they take the goal it's out. True. They take the goal out. We should have, when it deflects off one part of your body to the other. Why are we different to UEFA? We should have the That's same rule. Why, tell me why then? Why can't we because have, that, and, and align that, our games and, that's, and our that's rules? The problem because we're trying to be a little bit less prescriptive than the actual rules that have been written. So the people that are writing the rules are David Ellery, are Pierre Luigi Colina, and they want prescriptive rules. If it touches your hand, that's it. It's a penalty. It, it, there was a penalty in the Europa League last year uh, when Manchester United they lost at home against I think it was Real Sociedad. So they lost to one okay. nil. And it was so a you want it subjective. Off you another, want it subjective. Another then, yeah? part of the body. You want it subjective. You want it subjective. And do you? Do you want it subjective? I want more instinctive common sense in refereeing. So what about yes. the one in the in the Arsenal derby game when the ball hits the defender's hand? It's a penalty. Of course it's a penalty. We've got most of the world saying it isn't. Why are they saying that? We're losing track of what's handball and what isn't. If you're in the six-yard area and the ball hits you on the hand, I'm sorry, it's a penalty. Especially if it's going in the goal. Yeah. I could not unbelieve, believe the argument. I think we're getting clouded by too many views from other people and they're losing the, the plot. We're getting cloud, clouded because they keep changing the wording of the law. And they're, well, making, they're scrambling people's brains. I think there's an issue with the natural and unnatural position. Do I think, don't think referees do think understand that, that well VAR enough. has created this necessity to pivot the rules to meet VAR rather than the rules... Maybe. Yeah, I think that's what's um, happening. Being fit I think for they've, purpose ri- they've for written that for that. Yeah, they, 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 because you can shape because, it so because you can look moved, at it with more Because everything has changed, intent. isn't it? Once upon a time, what we used to see on a football pitch was mistakes being made and decisions being given and the naked eye being trusted. And then along came Sky with all the wonderful bells and whistles of what has created football in this country. And the scrutiny in the 360-degree, seven days a week, 24-hour access brought a new requirement of referees. And now, in order to combat that, because of the nature of what was happening in the game, which was the cons- cons- consistent deriding of officialdom and managers and players moving into a territory it was getting out of control about what they thought referees should and shouldn't be able to do we moved into a VAR territory and that VAR territory has created another conundrum and it's lovely and we started this conversation 
with the trite, glib comment from the England manager, which is, can't we go back to a day when people accepted, but nobody did. Nobody accepted it. Now, we can turn around and say, or oh, the guy in a pub, but we're not talking about the guy in a pub. We're talking about the people in the game. 20 Premier League managers asked for VAR to be introduced. Well, there you are. And and, and this week we've had the auto, uh, the ability to be able to have semi-automated offsides introduced into the potential discussion and the Premier League clubs potentially voted against it. And possibly one of the clubs that's been the most vociferous about the outcomes this week, and rightly so, Liverpool, were probably one of the football clubs that voted against. Not that it would have made any difference in this instance because they weren't considering an offside, an onside or, or, an offside, or more to the point, an offside decision. The reason why they one. did that, though, the, the semi-automated things because they thought there was new technology which coming down the line that is going to be more advanced than what they've already got so they're waiting instead well, of installing well all that case. money yeah, on but that we, but we have to accept I think, I think Howard Webb finds himself in a difficult situation with lots of new people with VAR coming in with lots of young referees I would say on the in the moment the referee please get it right because then it saves a lot of this trouble but there's, but there's also there's also another agenda here and I and I really do believe this and people are going to think about the idea that there's a sort of Kaiser Solzheim moment it was it was a, it was brought forward by what Pep Guardiola talks about, which is the arrogance and, and the need for officials to be Thanks for listening to our spoken humble. with White and Jordan. The officials Please are leave now, us a five-star review. Wherever you get your podcast from, we'll be to back tomorrow back to bring you the best of the show. The game. There is a, a real upsizing in leadership requirements from Howard Webb. There was a real necessity to be able to stop the instances that happened last year with Bruno Fernandes. With and correctly Andrew so. Robbins, and correctly so. So what I knew was coming. I knew it was coming. The football world would weaponise back and go... Hang on a second, referee's getting arrogant because they don't want that. Welcome to the Coliseum of Confrontation. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast from. I'll be back next week as Jim and Simon take a well-earned rest. So join us then and we'll have the best of the show.